0: to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. Today,
1: we have the, I believe it's founder and CEO. Am I getting that right, Sari? Mm -hmm. Founder and CEO of Fin Asset Protection and the host of the podcast, Thinking Like a Bank. So Sari Ibrahim,
2: welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, Michael, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Well, we always like to start off and get a little bit of a background about you and how you got started in your industry. What, what's your first interaction with financial markets? Can you give us uh, that first time you, you were intrigued by uh, by finance?
2: Yeah. So I kind of went into like a different way that led me into the financial services world. It was mostly on the insurance side. So I worked at, while I was doing my MBA, I worked at Allstate Insurance. So I was in risk mitigation and helping like business owners, like mitigate risk through the products that Allstate had, was offering at that time. And then, so I was pretty much a consultant and then went from there to the healthcare field. So I got into uh, the Medicare space where I was working with companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield, Humana, Cigna HealthSpring. And I was a Medicare consultant helping people who were like 64 65 years old merging on from merging from their employer plans to their own individually owned medicare plan and so i was like a medicare consultant making sure that the plan was suitable for them and then during that time one of my clients asked me if i could help him with life insurance the like cash value life insurance and i wasn't really familiar with how that worked but it sounded kind of intriguing the way he was just asking the questions about it It sounded pretty intriguing. But I told them I would do more research for him and get back to him. So I went to Amazon and I searched for books about life insurance. And I came across this book called The Bank-On-Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellett. And this book talks about the strategy, the, the utilization of the bank-on-yourself strategy. And this book is amazing because it's talking about like how you can grow safe and predictable uh, wealth over time, how you have access to it, how you could use that money for different purposes or different things. And that's what kind of got me hooked is that you can use it for different things. And then I found in the company Financial Asset Protection and our, and our main focus is the bank on yourself concept. So that's kind of you know how who we are, what we do. I've been on about a sh- hundred shows talking about this concept as a guest speaker, about the bank on yourself concept and how it's beneficial. And then I also found on the, the podcast, like you said, thinking like a bank, where we show people how to think like a bank, using the same strategies and principles that banks use. And and then and then what I really want to talk about on today's show with you is how you could utilize the strategy alongside investing in the stock market, buying stocks. or kind of different, some more intricate things that you can kind of connect with it to that'll give you more of a creative approach to, um, to investing.
1: That sounds great. I definitely want to get into it. Can you tell mm-hmm. us though, for people not familiar, what is the bank on yourself concept? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it's kind of a counterintuitive thing. It is using whole life insurance and building up the cash value in it and then using it for whatever you want. So to kind of back up, there's three types of life insurance. There's term life insurance, whole life and universal. So term is a set period of time. It's either five, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It has a start date and has the end date and it's only life insurance only. There's no cash value or equity in the policy.
1: That's the Um, one that's just a bet, right? You're betting that you're, 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 giving them 20 bucks a month and they're <laughs> yeah, that yeah. they won't have to that you won't die and they'll have to pay it out. And at the end of 20, 30 years, it, it, it goes away and they get to keep all the money. If you lived, is that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And, and 99% of the time, the insurance company wins.
1: That's how that. yeah. I mean, I would <laughs> hope, I don't mind. I have a small, I have a, a term policy. Yeah. I hope that the, I hope the insurance company wins. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is not the, one of those things where you want to win. <laughs> um, and then the second type of is whole life. Whole life is, is different because it has a start date and then it just, it's for your whole life. It doesn't end. It's a permanent form of life insurance. And then this, the, the other advantages is that it has cash value. There's equity that's building up in the policy that you could leverage and borrow against or withdraw, but you have different functions with this cash value. And this cash value is earning interest and dividends from the insurance company it's a part of. And the third type is universal. So universal is a combination of term and whole life. It has some, um, it has like some um, flexibility in it. You could turn on payments, turn off payments, add in, take out money. But for the purposes of talking about the bank on yourself concept, we're talking about mostly whole life insurance. Now, one thing I want to just kind of put it out from the beginning is that a lot of people are like, wait, I thought whole life insurance was a bad investment. And it could be a bad investment. It's, this is not mostly an investment. It's, it's a savings option. It's an alternative to where your where your cash lives. So it's not like whole life insurance or investing in the stock market or real estate. It's a way that you can kind of do all of these together, utilizing this concept and, and kind of where it's about where your money lives. And for this you know topic, it's about having your money living in a whole life insurance policy and then leveraging that for whatever it is that you want to do.
1: So you said it's a savings account alternative? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I hadn't heard that before. Now I do, I've had some interaction with a whole life insurance sales company before. Uh Uh, Uh They basically tried to recruit me as a salesperson. Uh (laughs) And I went to one of the meetings because I was kind of intrigued. You know, one of my buddies, he was all of a sudden, you know, he went from, you know, tending bar and all of a sudden he had all this money, leasing new cars and all this. And I was, you know, so I was a little intrigued. Yeah. Uh, So I went to one of the meetings We didn't talk about insurance at all. We talked about (laughs) lifestyle and and growing this and doing this and getting on a private jet and everything. So is there, I mean, what, is there a bad element in this industry that we need to be on the lookout for?
2: Yeah, yeah, there there definitely is. Like, so so the insurance field has definitely become more of like an MLM, multi-level marketing field, where it's more about like bringing in new people. And then recruiting and then having them recruit new people. So yeah, that's definitely like one ugly side to the industry. It's something that I'm not proud of. The actual products themselves, like dividend paying, whole life insurance, the utilization of it for multi-generational wealth, for legacy continuation, for tax advantages, it's beautiful. There's so many beautiful things about it that can be used, especially if you're a business owner, you're a real estate investor, you're a, uh, a day trader. There's so many things that you could utilize with this that, that'll that fit really nice in your financial portfolio. But when it comes to the marketing and, and getting new agents on board, it's just something that I kind of am not a big fan of. I, I went through that as well. Um, and I have like a system in place right now where like new people try to recruit me um, and it's kind of something I'm kind of used to now, which is trying to, even until now, like I still try to get recruited by new agencies and new people. And even like recruiters who have never sold life insurance or sold any financial product. They're just, their job is to go out there and hire, you know, 10 new people every year. And it's like a, it's like a sales funnel. They get in a thousand, they talk to a thousand people of those thousand, a hundred are interested of those hundred, you know, 10 actually make it into the program. And then next year, nine out of those 10 people quit. And then they do it all over again. It's like a cycle that it's you know, like you said, It's the kind of like it's not really the appealing side to the insurance field, but I mean, it's that's a pyramid one
0: pyramid scheme essentially, right?
2: <laughs> yep, exactly.
0: <laughs> I I was talking to my wife about this. It's actually a pretty brilliant scheme because you know yeah. why insurance? Like you know, there's other MLMs. You know, there's you can sell clothing or you know yeah. supplements or something like that. And it's like with with insurance, you're making actually a monthly payment, so that is a recurring revenue stream. Yeah, and you're in your MLM. You know, yeah. and if you could get like a lot of those. Recurring revenue streams. I think that'd be pretty. If you're (laughs) depending on where you're at in the the pyramid scheme, you're doing pretty well.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's a a pyramid scheme, and I think there's some benefit too. Like, for example, like if you recruited somebody and then you train them, and then now that person under you has like this cool lifestyle now because of this income they're building. That's pretty cool because now you're you're like the mentor, you're the coach, you're helping them, and like you said, it's recurring revenue every month that they're paying towards one of the biggest advantages of being in the insurance field is the renewal income in, in the later years. So yeah, definitely, um, it's possible to do it that way. And I, I think it's, if it's, if it's in the best interest of everybody in the clients and in the recruited agents, then yeah, it could be a very healthy business relationship, a very healthy business actually.
0: So, so maybe I, I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm kind of curious that we kind of talked about this in the abstract, but like maybe applying it to like an individual, like, so can you give an example? Like, do you mm-hmm. like buy life insurance? Products? Yeah. Like what, what do you own? And like, how did you decide, to do that and versus like what percentage you have in other assets. So just using you as an example, then maybe we could build off that.
2: Yeah. So I started my first policy with $300 per month. And then the way I structured the policy is that, so I could add in additional premiums every year without it becoming a taxable contract. So it's a, it's more of a savings vehicle. And the first year I put in $300 per month, the second year I paid up the whole annual premium, $3,600 or $300 times 12, and then added in another $3,000 to max out the policy. And then, so that was my first policy, and the second policy I did was four thousand dollars a year. So there's, it's, it's as far as allocating certain funds to it. I, it depends on the person. I would say if you're starting off, do like five percent of your annual income, maybe on the on the higher end, ten percent of your annual income, and then as you get the hang of it, and as you're building up the cash value in it, then you can start doing a greater portion of your of your income. Or cash flow towards it. Now, as far as if if I was recommending it to somebody, we always do like a financial analysis with clients. We get to know their situation, where they want to go, how much cash they already have, what kind of uh, accounts are they already utilizing. And then from there, we would structure a policy or sometimes even numerous policies. So that way to kind of start them off on their financial plan. Now, let's say, for example, you're building up a policy and you got like $10,000 in cash value in it. Now you could borrow up to 90% of that. So you can take out, nine. in this example, you could take out 9,000, you borrow against it. And now your 10,000 keeps growing and compounding as if you never touched it. So it's uninterrupted growth. Then you could take that 9,000 and then go and buy stocks, go invest it in crypto, do whatever you want with that. Um, and then as you're earning profits there, hopefully you will, then you can pay back that loan. Plus there's additional room in the policy that you could add in additional premiums on top. And then you could do it all over again. You could borrow up to 90% of that take money out, go invest it, and then put it back in and then and, and utilizing it. So in other words, instead of taking money from a checking account or a regular savings account, and then into stocks or other investments, you're taking it from whole life insurance and then putting it different places because it keeps growing. Even when you access it, it keeps growing.
1: So let me, help me understand this. So if I, let's say for instance, mm-hmm. I lose, uh, uh-huh. you know, I, I, I get my $10,000 out. I take mm-hmm. 9,000 out. Mm-hmm. I, I put it in Bitcoin yeah, and Bitcoin goes to zero tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I just lost that $9,000. You said it's still growing in the, in the whole life. Yeah, What's my repayment schedule?
2: Yeah. You control that. That's one of the, 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 from the title bank on yourself. It's one of the things that you control. You control when you pay it back. So if you did in this example, if you borrowed $9,000 and then lost it all, you just have an outstanding loan now with the insurance company for $9,000. Now, as long as you keep making your premium payments, you know, Depending on how you set it up, if, as long as keeping the premium payments and the policies still active, you don't have to pay that back. Um, and let's say, for example, you know, 30 years later, you pass or 40 years later, you pass away. They take that 9,000 plus interest that the insurance company loaned you out of the life insurance amount. So you pay that back whenever you want. The benefit of paying it back sooner is that you have the ability to borrow again against it. So it's just an outstanding loan against the cash value that you already have. It's not a subtraction of the cash value.
1: Okay. So you take that, so your cash value is growing and you you said something about your earning interest while it's, while it's in there, what type of interest are they learning? Is that fixed? Is that variable?
2: So it's two ways. So one way is that it it earns kind of like a, almost like it's not really a fix. It's, it's, it's a, it's written through a a guaranteed contract. It averages a conservative rate. It averages about 3% per year in compound growth on your cash value. And then the dividends added to that as well. Dividends are not guaranteed, but we only work with insurance companies who have been paying dividends for over 160 years. So we work with companies that have a very solid track record and actually just learned that life insurance companies have more cash. Life insurance companies in the U.S. alone have more cash than all the banks in the world combined and all the oil companies in the world combined. So And it's because of the way they're regulated. Like they have to have the, the, those amounts of cash on hand, which is how they're able to guarantee all of the future projections of cash value growth as well, as well as debt benefits, as well as liquidity too. So another benefit of utilizing strategy is that it's guaranteed It's guaranteed growth, number one, and then number two, it's guaranteed liquidity. So you never have to qualify for a loan. And then the insurance companies never have to kind of base it off of market conditions or market trends to loan out money to you, like banks do. Like in 2008, a lot of banks stopped loaning out money because they also lost a lot of money in, in, the, in the housing crisis also. Um, they were not in a, in a financial situation because think about it, banks aren't going to lend out during a crisis because they know the people they're lending to don't have jobs or have a lack of income. So how would they get their money back? So they just don't lend money out to people. Uh, but insurance companies don't follow those same rules. They have the liquidity. And as long as you have cash value in your policy, they'll, they'll guarantee you a loan up to 90%. So whatever the column is up to 90% you could borrow. So this is something that like, you never have to really worry about like qualifying for a loan ever again, as long as you have the cash value of the policy.
0: So what are like the typical interest rates on the loans that you take out against that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So good question. So the, so the, you're earning in your, in your policy, you're earning compound interest with the interest and in dividends. It ends up being about 5% that you're earning in the policy. And then you, when you buy that money, yeah, you're loaning when you, when you loan that from the insurance company, it's 5% simple interest. So what happens is, is that as you're borrowing and and earning interest in the policy, like kind of in and out, your cash value growth is going to outpace what you're paying for. Because you're earning about 5% compound, it's going to outpace 5% simple interest. In other words, that and then also the ability that your cash value keeps compounding even when you borrow that money. So what happens is people end up like, let's say, for example, back to the example of taking 9,000 out and then using that money, let's say you were able to double that money somewhere else. So you borrowed 9,000, made it into 18,000. Not only did you make a $9,000 profit on the outside of the policy, but also in the policy, it kept growing. Depending on when you paid it back and all the factors, you may make a couple thousand dollars, you know, in the following year or second year. So you made money in the policy and you made money outside the policy.
0: Yeah, sounds great. I'll let Michael follow up with a question. <laughs> okay.
1: All right. So this, this is actually interesting. I really didn't, I don't think I understood exactly how this all worked. Um, so it's actually, it's it's really fascinating. And you said that basically that whenever you pay it back, you pay it back on your schedule. If you can't mm-hmm. pay it back, you just don't pay it back. And they deduct it from your uh, from your policy when they have to pay it, you know, 10, yeah. 100 years down the road, whenever I, whenever I kick the bucket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So is that, The whole bank on yourself concept, is there more to it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So this is it. In basic terms, more to it could be now what we're using the money for. This is where the more part comes out to it. A lot of clients use it strictly for real estate investing. Some clients use it for hard money lending or private money lending. Um, Some people use it for their business. Sometimes it's owned by a business. The policy is owned by a business as opposed to owned individually. There's some different legal and tax things there, differences too. Another another part too that I want to mention is that there's a lot of tax advantages with the bank on yourself strategy, specifically with the growth. As it's earning interest and dividends in the policy and it's accumulating and growing, you don't have to pay taxes on that growth in the policy. And then in most situations, when you access that money, you don't have to pay taxes on that either because you're using after-tax dollars to fund the policy. And when you take that money out, it's typically coming out as a loan or a return of premium. So this way you can kind of grow this wealth over time without having to pay taxes on that growth. It's a way to convert over from let's say you're in the 25% tax bracket to the 0% tax bracket once you enter into the policy. So this way, if there's a spike in tax rates in the future, which I think there will be, if there's a spike in tax rates in the future, you won't have to pay, you won't have, you won't be exposed to those spike in spikes in tax rates. A lot of tax advantages when utilizing this concept. So I guess.
1: The taxes, you don't get taxed on the growth. What about contributions? Is this post-tax money or pre-tax money?
2: Yeah, it's post-tax money. So you work, for example, earn, you know, you pay your taxes, the money that goes into your checking account, that money would then be used to deposit into the whole like policy.
1: But you said there's no tax on the, on the growth. So as this mm-hmm. thing ends up growing, there is no tax. What about my loan that I took out and I doubled my money on my Bitcoin? Did I, uh, did, is that, is that growth taxable?
2: So the growth in the policy is not taxable. The growth outside the policy is because once that money comes into your hand and you use it, it's like the same thing as if you took the money out of a checking account or a savings account and then use that for somewhere else.
1: And so the same would go, uh, I could still take my $3,000 write off if I lost money trading stocks too. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, that's that's fascinating. It's really interesting. So, what if what if somebody wanted to get started on this? Do they just can they do they have to start with the premiums, like the annual premiums, like you were talking about? Can Mm -hmm. they just say, okay, you know what, I've got fifty thousand dollars, I want to move it into one of these accounts, Mm -hmm. and then withdraw forty five thousand dollars immediately? How how would that work?
2: Yeah, good question. So you could do a couple ways. You could do it more on a low end where you do monthly payments just to kind of start off the policy. It's a long term plan. Like I started three hundred dollars a month. And then, or you could do it on um, annually. Of course, when you do it annually, you get a kind of an, an advance on the dividends. You're getting like a, a little bit higher amount if you're doing annual. Or you could even do a single premium. So, like you said, you can take fifty thousand dollars, put it into the policy, and then tomorrow go out and borrow forty thousand dollars against that, and then it keeps growing against that. Yeah, I've had clients put in six hundred thousand dollars a one-time payment, six hundred thousand dollars in, and then turn around and borrow five fifty out of that, and then. Uh, use that for real estate investing. So they become like their own mortgage essentially when they do it that way. So it depends on uh, the financial analysis kind of tells us where to go. Of course, not everybody could just, you know, take, you know, hundred grand and just put it into a policy and then borrow right, right out of it. You need that money initially to be there. So the financial analysis helps us kind of navigate where to go. And then even like why we're going to do certain, certain things. Sometimes we might do a combination of things. We might do like, if it's a, uh, two spouses, one would do uh $50,000, is a single premium, the other would do a monthly monthly contribution. So it kind of depends on if it's a married couple, where they want to go, or if it's somebody who's um, on their own single, where they want to go. So we, the financial analysis allows us to get a deeper dive on, on what to do next.
0: So, so I'm curious when you're shopping around mm-hmm. for one of these policies, like I'm sure there's multiple parties yeah. offering these kind of things and you can kind of compare and contrast. Like I can go to a ba- different many different banks and look yeah. at their interest rates and stuff. So if you were shopping around and you're telling someone, Hey, how do I compare one versus the other? What would you be saying to look at? Like what are the numbers that you look at to compare these?
2: Yeah, yeah, good question. So before the numbers come in, I would go through the a checklist of what to make sure the insurance company has or is doing. So number one, it needs to be um, whole life insurance. It can't be anything else but whole life insurance. Number two, it needs to be from a mutually owned insurance company, not a stock owned insurance company. So a mutually owned insurance company gives their dividends and parts of their profits back to the policy owners, the customers. So you want to make sure it's a mutually owned as opposed to a stock company, which of course gives their dividends back to shareholders. So you want to make sure it's a a mutually owned insurance company. The third is something you need a paid up additions writer in the policy. This is a part, a piece that you add to the policy that helps increase the cash value over time. It also helps with with flexibility. So certain years you could say, I want to add in a few thousand. The following years you say, I'm not going to do that this year. So you have flexibility in the policy to be able to add more money in. And then when you do add more money in, it grows over time. That's called the paid up additions writer. And then you need to make sure that it's, it's the right amount of the paid up additions writer. Like there's a blend between like 50% life insurance and the 50% paid up additions writer. So you need to make sure that the advisor you're dealing with understands what these terms mean and how to properly structure a policy. And the fourth is uh, you need to make sure the company is a non-direct recognition company. This means that back to the initial example, you have $10,000 in the policy, you borrow 9000 a non-direct recognition company will keep growing as if you hadn't touched the money. In other words, whether you borrow the money or not, the cash value grows the same way. That's called non-direct recognition, and this is what you want. You want to be able to leverage your money without interrupting the growth of it. Because this is not an investment, right? This is something that, that could be used alongside investments or for investments. So you want to make sure it's non-direct recognition. If it's direct recognition, of course, then it will hinder your the, the cash growth over time when you do access that money as a loan. So non-direct recognition keeps growing um, even when you're using that money. So you want to make sure those four things are in place before utilizing this. There are uh, bank-minded self-professionals. I'm one of them. There's about 200 bank-minded self-professionals in the U.S. and Canada that specialize in the um, structure of dividend-paying whole life insurance for self-banking purposes. There's also the infinite banking network, infinite banking network that helps um, uh, people do the same thing. The bank on yourself strategy is also known as the infinite banking concept. It's both the utilizing dividend paying whole life insurance. So you want to make sure the agent or advisor you're dealing with knows this. We would have recommended just to go and find any whole life insurance agent that sells from any company. And then just say, Hey, I want to do this thing. You, know? uh, you probably wouldn't be able to do it that way. It, there's so many limitations. Like for example, out of the 2000 life insurance companies in the U S it drops the, out of the 2000 only four of them could do the four things we talked about you know whole life insurance mutually owned non-direct recognition and the pit up additions provider. so you want to make sure that an advisor does this on a full-time basis not something that you want to try out with you and see if they can kind of wing it and figure this out on their own there's more there's a lot more that goes into it than just having an insurance license
1: all right that was a lot of information so i think it's basically you need somebody to kind of hold your hand and help you navigate through this if this is a route you want to go uh, but yeah, I was kind of sure. curious. All right, so I know on my traditional term policy, yeah. Like I said, I can't even think of exactly what the premium is. It's very small. I feel mm-hmm. like I pay like $16 a month and they'll pay out a half million in the event, you know, I yeah. in a car accident or something. How, do, how does the, the whole life compare? Let's say that $10,000 or that $50,000, what type of a benefit would we be looking at in the event, you know, something was to happen to me? What, you know, what would that pay out to the family in the next couple of months or years?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So like, when it comes to the utilizing the strategy, it's more about the cash benefits, the living benefits. It's more about the utilization of the money you have now today that you could use today. But when it comes to strictly life insurance, we, if somebody came to me, for example, and said, I want to just do life insurance only, I want a million dollars in life insurance and I, that's all I want, nothing else. I wouldn't do this concept. I wouldn't do everything we're talking about now. I would just do a term policy and then just do $1 million coverage because you can get, if a, for life insurance only, you can get a lot more with term insurance than you can with whole life. But the problem is, is that they have different functions and different purposes. So if somebody was if interested in this concept, we would do whole life insurance, of course, uh, for, self, for self-banking purposes. And then in that case, since we're emphasizing more on the cash value growth, it's going to be the life insurance going to be much less than the term life policy. So for example, if you put in $10,000 a year in a whole life policy, Depending on somebody's age, let's say they are uh, 35 years old, putting in $10,000 a year, their life insurance might be the whole life policy, might be $400,000. Now let's say they took that same $10,000 and they put it into term life insurance, they might, you know, it might be five or six million dollars in life insurance premiums. But the point isn't which where which, where do I go to get more life insurance? It's irrelevant at that point. We're talking about self banking and restructuring, repositioning where our dollars go. To have more uh, compound growth over time, it's two different functions. You know, um, this is what the financial analysis allows us to do. We understand what the client wants to do. Again, if somebody only wants life insurance, that's all they care about, then term would be a much better fit for them. You can get way more life insurance with term, probably ten times more for the same amount of money, maybe even more than that with term than you can with whole life. But again, whole life insurance only alone is not just about the life insurance. The life insurance is part of it. It's a it's a tool within the function it's not you know just the title of it it's within it and there's a purpose behind it and that is in this case to have your money growing in numerous places at the same time
1: so all right so it sounds like you're not trying it's these are competing products yeah, exactly yeah they have so, two different purposes like, so basically for me as the sole provider for my family i'd try the best that i keep my term policy yeah. that pays that half million dollars in the event mm-hmm. you know i get hit by a bus out here yeah. So, mm-hmm. But at the same time, if I wanted to take $50,000 and then reinvest $45,000, I could mm-hmm. then take that and transfer the savings to a whole life and then pull, pull out the uh, 95% and go crazy on my uh, you know, YOLO, some Bitcoin, GME, <laughs> and, uh, and Tesla here.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And then you would, uh, yeah, while you're doing that, you would also want to consider too what's going to happen when your term policy runs out. So let's say, for example, you're 10 years into your policy. Or actually, let me ask you, well, how far are you into the term policy?
1: Oh, I'm like a, I'm like a year in my, I think I, okay. I can't remember if it was a 20 or 30 year policy. Uh-huh. My intention is by the time I have that, I have more than enough cash saved up that it's just completely irrelevant. I'm in the building phase. You know, I just became self-employed here. Oh, nice. So, okay. So like, I know that I just wanted to make sure I've got, I'm cu- I'm bridging the gap. Um, huh? But I'm, I'm, I'm betting on myself. Mm-hmm. I feel like by the time that policy expires, it's going to be so incredibly irrelevant Uh, Mm -hmm. to the amount of wealth I will will have amassed by that time.
2: Definitely. I see what you're saying. So by that time, you want to pretty much be self-insured where you just, you can finance, um, you know, if something were to happen to you, your family would be fine because of the wealth you've accumulated over time.
1: Exactly. Yep. That's the plan. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay. Good. Good.
1: Since I'm not quite there yet, I figured term life bridges the gap for me.
2: That's smart. Yeah, definitely. And because your concern now is life insurance in the short term, then yeah, term would be a better fit for that.
0: So for, the, for the whole life insurance term, the whole, the whole policy. So mm-hmm. at the, at the, the cash value, then mm-hmm. essentially, it, it does go to the insurance company when you die, right? So the way the insurance company is making money off this policy is that they're hoping that the death benefit is smaller than the amount of the cash value that they've accrued over time. So to make this a a uh, math, so I'm assuming the insurance companies aren't doing this out of their own generosity, they're offering yeah, yeah, these plans, yeah. they're making some money off this, mm-hmm. right? And so the, and so the way that, the, I guess the insurance company wins, and I put that quote unquote, but the way that they are winning at the end of the day is by that the, the cash value of the policy exceeds the amount of death benefit at the end of the day at the time that you die. Is that the primary way that the insurance company is profiting off these plans?
2: So the way the insurance company profits off these plans is kind of like, it's similar to the bank, how banks operate. So every year as you're allocating premium dollars to the policy, the insurance company is investing that in different places. The majority of that is invested in the bond market. And then about 20 to 40% of their portfolio is is invested in private loans specifically private loans for real estate investing. So they are more on the conservative side and every year they're investing those dollars. Eventually the insurance, but with, with the whole life insurance policy, the, it's not like an, if uh, like the term policy term is more of, if I pass away within this time period, whole life is when I'll pass away. So what's if versus when, um, when the insurance company takes on a risk of whole life insurance, they know as long as this person keeps paying the premiums, they are, they are on the hook to pay the death benefit. And the death benefit is always greater than the cash value about 10 times greater than the cash value and the life insurance keeps growing every single year. So every year as this insurance company is taking in these premium dollars and investing them in different places and earning, you know, money on that investment and growing their, their portfolio, they're also on the hook for the life insurance premium. And it keeps growing the cash value and life insurance keeps growing until age 121. That's when the cash value meets the life insurance. A lot equals out the endowment period where the cash value meets the life insurance, um, but the insurance company, it's kind of like um, tricky because the insurance company is, is for sure going to pay out the life insurance. It's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when they do that, but they do make money similar to how banks and other financial institutions m- make money. The difference is what they can invest in and also the fractional requirements. So when you go to the bank, for example, you deposit a hundred dollars, you're giving the lo- a bank a loan for one hundred dollars. They then take that money and they can they can loan out up to ten times that amount to other people via credit cards and mortgages and other places like that. It's called fractional reserve banking. You can have, I think banks only need 10% of the total uh, amount amount of money loaned out. Whereas insurance companies, it's the opposite. They need about two times the amount of money they have. So if, if, a, if, a, if a insurance company has a hundred million dollars in liabilities, other people's cash value, death benefits, um, other th- policy loans, all everything else they have to accommodate for people, they need two times that in reserves to be able to meet all of those needs in case everybody dies or ever, something happens to everybody, they could still have an extra cushion in between to keep operating.
0: Sure. So, so I, I get what you're saying there. So, so okay. So i will be a few questions, but like, you know, one, yeah. like, you know, if you just Google like, you know, whole life insurance and you Google term, you know, and you, you get, you know, Dave Ramsey to yeah. pop up yeah. and, you know, and, and this is his, you know, thing, it's like his quote, you know, you die before maturity and your cash value disappears. This is kind of in bold letters on his, his website. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, if you don't, if you didn't do anything with the cash value while you were alive, guess what? The insurance this company keeps it. Your family gets a death benefit it, while the insurance company nabs your cash value account. This is parentheses. This is one of the worst things about cash value life insurance, and why will we will tell you never. Mm-hmm. Well, we will tell you to steer clear of it. So, I guess Dave Ramsey, he's got this opinion on it. What would you be your counter to that point that Dave Ramsey's saying there?
2: Yeah, I've never seen a family say, you know, hey, you know, my 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 cash value is four hundred thousand dollars. If I die, my family gets four million dollars. That's not fair. You know, in other words, the like death benefit is about four times the life, the cash value. So having the insurance company not give you the cash value is irrelevant at that point because the death benefit is 10 times greater than the cash value or even more in some situations. No, you know, it's a huge jump. Um, also, like, for example, if you own a home and you have your equity and then you have the market value, when you sell your home, you don't get both. You don't get the equity plus the market value. You usually get the market value, the greater of the two. Same thing with life insurance. You don't get your death benefit plus the cash value in there. You get the death benefit, which is greater than the cash value.
0: Okay. So the cash value you don't see being greater than the death benefit.
2: No, well, I'm no, going to
1: jump in here real quick. Because I think uh, Saris made the point that this isn't just for the death benefit. Mm-hmm. This was as, a, as something you utilize. Mm-hmm. And even in, in your, your quote from Dave Ramsey, he said, if you didn't do anything with the cash benefit, with the cash value then at that point you probably should have, you would have been better off with a term or something. Yeah.
2: Maybe for sure.
1: So is that, am I hitting that about right? Do you think?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Again, if it, if it only comes down to just life insurance protect, yeah, term would, would win. And that's something I would recommend even as the advice. if somebody just was hooked only on the term part on the life insurance part term would win. But again, we're talking about where does the money live? The cash that you have instead of it, in my opinion, instead of it living in the bank account, not earning you any interest at all. You can have it sit somewhere that will earn you compound interest and that's liquid still. So it's not locking up money. It's still liquid. You can borrow up to 90% at any time for any reason, no matter what, you could pay back on your own terms. You can use that over and over again while the money is still growing. So that's kind of the advantage of it or the point of why somebody would even utilize, you know, whole life insurance. there. And then of course, in the later years too, um, You never have to worry about underwriting again. So once you get into the whole life policy, you get accepted. It doesn't run out until it it just—it's almost infinite until you pass away. Whereas term, if somebody wanted, you know, uh, got a thirty-year term policy, let's say they're thirty-five years old, they got a thirty-year term policy. When they're sixty-five years old, now in order for them to keep life insurance going, they would have to renew that policy, go through underwriting again, and of course, if you're you're at the age of sixty-five, it's going to make it harder to get approved. For life insurance at that age, but let's just say you do, you get another maybe 20-year term. It's going to be a lot more money, maybe 10 times, about 10 times the rate it originally was. But the whole point of a whole life, the, the other advantages of it is it it's con it, it's life insurance that's also uninterrupted. It keeps go, going and growing, um, regardless of your underwrite or your medical situation. So that's another advantage. But more on the short-term side, within like a 20-year or 30-year time frame of working, investing, and making money. Um, term would win if it's just for life insurance only, but again, we're talking about where does the money live, and it could you could do a lot more, in my opinion, with the money living in a whole life insurance policy. In the meantime, while still accessing it, that to use for anything else you want.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think it's all interesting. I think you know, again, I'm always a little bit of a skeptic here, but I think you know, <laughs> it's interesting that you said that, you know, you know, what banks can do with the regulations they have with their money versus what insurance companies can do with their money, and it almost seems you know, a banks should get greater returns if they can lend out more of their money and mm-hmm. they're not ha- required to keep those capital requirements. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, I mean, I guess your bank account is liquid, you know, in the sense that yeah. you can move in and out, but even banks, when they ha- they lock you into CDs, those CD yeah. rates seem to be a little bit less than that. So it seems very interesting that, you know, that they're able to offer interest rates that are much higher than banks because mm-hmm. banks can leverage their money higher. So, it, you know, so how are they economically doing that? Going to lead you suspect that they're getting some money somehow to do that, that they're making some business sense. And so that's where I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, how is that insurance company making the money off there that they're out, they're exceeding the, the amount that a bank can offer and they're exceeding the profit that a bank can do when, when a bank can, you know, actually leverage their money greater and do, and do more things with it. It sounds like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I'm just interested in how that, I guess, I don't know how an insurance company operates internally, but that's an interesting business model. They're able to achieve such higher returns for people than a bank can.
2: Yeah. And it's also, they have multiple things that they do with their money. So they have the, the money invested in the bond market, large amounts, billions, probably hundreds of billions of dollars invested in the bond market. So even at a, you know, 2%, 3% growth rate, you know, that's a significant amount of growth every year based off of the total invested amount. Plus they also have an underwriting profit. So for example, uh, if they insured hundred people, you know, out of those hundred people, you know, one, maybe if that would pass away that year, so they with the, the other, all the 99 other people, the pool that they have outpaces or beats the, the odds. In other words, they're able to, that's a profit there. So their money, they're making money in two different places. And this is the same true with like auto insurance and homeowner's insurance. They, they have their underwriting profit where they underwrite a deal. They take over uh, the, the risk. They're going to make money on their risk too because they collect premium dollars from everybody in that area and then or everybody in that, do, that set, that data set. And then only a very small percentage are actually going to have claims. And even with those claims that people have, the other dollars offset the um, the losses. And this is something the underwriters and actuaries are trained on is that they only take on risks that they know that at the end of the day with the other capital they'll have coming in, they, they could beat those Beat, beat the or offset those losses. In other words, they can bring in more money than they'll spend. So that's a profit there. And then with the money that's sitting somewhere, they're also making money with that too in the bond market and giving that money out in, via private loans to other financial institutions. They actually give out loans to banks, even in some situations, insurance companies. So they're making money in kind of two different places. That's how they're able to have two times a reserve requirement and why they're able to stay in business for well over 160 years. Almost all insurance companies have. And even in 2008, when when the market market crash happened, um, the insurance companies were not affected by that. The only insurance companies that were affected were the ones that had separate divisions in the banking, investment banking divisions. that were separate from their insurance products. Those were the ones, like AIG, for example, AIG, their investment banking division, Um, collapse after 2008 but not the insurance company of course because by law they have to keep everything separate and then so that way they don't obviously hinder the the insurance parts of their business you mentioned that
1: they do a lot of real estate investing Mm -hmm. Um, and we've talked you know there's a good amount of you know different investments more risky ones i think most people are aware that like hedge funds can really yeah. invest in anything. They can mm-hmm. invest in gold. They can invest in Corvette. Yeah. They can short GameStop if they yeah. want. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Mutual funds, they're a little more regulated. They can only yeah. go long. They can only yeah. buy stock and they actually are required to be long a certain percentage of their portfolio at any given mm-hmm. time. Like they are not allowed to go completely to cash mm-hmm. in the event of a market crash. They, they, I forget what, I don't know what the percentage is but mm-hmm. I know there's a percentage they're allowed to keep in there. What type of investments are insurance companies allowed to make? You mentioned real estate, yeah. which seems rather safe, but, you know, we all lived through the 2008 financial collapse. We're aware that, you know, a lot of real estate markets got devastated by that. What, what type of real, uh, regulations, though, are the insurance companies, these whole life insurance companies uh, allowed to invest in? And, and what what I guess what, the, what are the laws uh, guiding them?
2: Yeah. So it's a good question. So it's mostly about what they can't invest in. So what they can't invest, they can't do, um, uh, stock trading. They can't do like options trading or futures. They can not do anything that's seen as kind of like volatile. Um, it's it's something that usually with insurance companies, I think of insurance companies, I think of the bond market, you know, that's something that they're heavily involved into more on that conservative side. So yeah, it's more about what they can't invest. They cannot do high risk, you know, um, stock trading um, or options trading or any of those similar types of volatile investments. What, not to what say about that those- bonds, are,
1: they, are they limited? I guess, we're and we're primarily yeah. talking about US yeah, yeah. companies here. Are they limited to US bonds? Cause I know international bonds. I think Russia had a big default yeah. uh, back in the nineties if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So what, what are their options in terms of bonds? Are all bonds or just US bonds?
2: Yeah, yeah, good question. So I never went that far into it, actually. So I've heard corporate bonds, corporate U.S. bonds, for sure, they they invest in. Um, but as far as international, I don't know that. I'm, I'm going to do more research on that and find out if they actually do invest in international bonds. Um, yeah, yeah, good question. So I guess kind of like... In they Europe, can't do corporate uh, bonds? They, they can, yeah, do corporate, yeah.
1: And are they, I guess, regulated and they can't have more than a certain percent in maybe one particular company say they bought corporate bonds from Enron. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those probably didn't work out so well, you know, but they, were they allowed to have a they probably weren't, a, were they not allowed to have a hundred percent of their uh, portfolio invested into uh, Enron bonds?
2: They probably wouldn't want to, you know, if, even if they were, I think at that point it would be more on the insurance company's financial decisions of where, of how much is allocated. You know, there was the same thing that happened with like Nabisco where they, they had, um, MetLife, I think, if I'm not mistaken, had bonds, they owned bonds in Nabisco. And then when Nabisco went through all of the, from the book, uh, Barbarians at the Gate, when they went through that L- um, leverage buyout, the cost of the bonds drastically reduced. And then they ended up suing, MetLife ended up suing RJR Nabisco for interfering with the the bonds they had invested in. So I think some certain situations like that and other insurance companies would probably learn from and not to do that. That high of leverage or that much leverage for, or sorry, um, investments in one, in one particular company.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Oh, Brian. Oh, I'm just saying maybe a side note, but like there's a big MetLife actually has a big, uh, location here in, uh, in North Carolina, in the triangle, Oh, really? right by, um, uh, I guess it's Almstead park. You could actually see their big building when you run around the park Lake, and carry Lake, Lake Crabtree, Lake Crabtree. They, yeah.
1: just, they just built their third building. They've got this, oh, wow. third, yeah, these, three buildings that look out over, uh, Lake Crabtree. It's a
0: beautiful property. Yeah. Like it's, it's funny. We, I, we know like several people who work at uh, MetLife and I, I, again, they, they, at least the ones that I know, they, they're like IT people. They're not like salespeople, but like they, they, uh, they work on the website and yeah, I guess I've, you know, I've, (laughs) <laughs> talk to them about like life insurance they they always kind of said what you said it's like you know, they have so much money in the bank you know yeah. that's just like making you know, it doesn't really matter they're not making profit off of actual policies is so what he said he seemed to imply it's like we don't really need the customers i mean i'm sure they want to get customers maybe that was a good way to say it but yeah, yeah. they just have so much there that's just like you just need to earn interest on that and they they'll be fine forever so
2: exactly yeah yeah you're right exactly
0: but um now that, that was interesting so i guess you know so I guess for personally for you, so you're, you're using these uh, policies and you're, um, you're loaning yourself back the money. So then I guess, what, what have you been doing lately with that kind of money?
2: Well, right now I am building up one of my, so I initially started the policy for using it to pay down debt. What I was doing is I had, I had some, when I started my first business, I had some credit card debt. And then as I was paying down that debt and then building up the life policy, the cash value in it, I started to kind of move over the debt there from the credit card company to my life insurance company. So this way I would have more managed over over the the debt. And it actually helped me reduce the debt significantly because as I was paying it down, there was no interruption in the growth. It's like, for example, like, let's say for example, you're, you're in a situation like, do you pay down debt or do you save your money for the future? Well, what if there's a way to do both, where you could save for the future and pay down debt at the same time? That's what I did, that was one way I leveraged it. And then the second way I'm gonna do it now is I'm gonna actually, in this August, my wife and I were gonna buy a home and we're gonna use both of our cash values and the policies as a down payment. And then on a side note, um, that's actually allowed. You could do that, and when, you, when you're financing a home, Usually, insurance. Uh, sorry, usually lenders are very particular about where the money comes from when you're putting it as a down payment. They need to make sure it's your money that you're using, money that you worked for and you've earned over time. Um, and you can't, like for example, borrow from somebody else money. You can't. You can't like use a credit card as a down payment on a, on a property because in the event that they need to collateralize that and take that over other people would come into the mix and be like, oh yeah, that's technically our home too because he borrowed money from us and whatever. So so lenders need to make sure that that's not happening, that you're actually using your own money. But if it comes from a life insurance policy, they're actually very open to that. And even if you borrow that money from the life insurance company, they view that as your own money. So essentially, let's say, for example, simple math, it's a $100,000 property. You're gonna uh, buy, you're gonna uh, put down $20,000 as a down payment or 20%. You could borrow $20,000 from the insurance company, assuming you have that much collateral in the policy. So you borrow $20,000 and then the lender loans you 80000 with the property. So now you're 100% loaned now. So 80% from the lender, 20% from the insurance company. But the lender sees that as if it's $20,000 is your money, as if you took that out of a checking account or savings account. They don't view that as loan money, which is a huge advantage because now you can grow your money, leverage it, do all these things without anybody stopping you. From, from liquidating your account or asking or not even qualifying that life insurance money.
0: No, that sounds like a great, oh, go ahead, Michael.
1: Uh, I was gonna know, I, I actually saw so that when I bought my house, we actually, mm-hmm. we bought one house and sold one house and mm-hmm. the way the, the underwriters did it, they actually, they wrote it as if the sale of one house was gonna cover the, the cost of the other. And I go, well, uh-huh. you, technically I'm actually gonna own both houses for a couple of weeks there, there's yeah. like an overlap. And they go, where's that money coming from? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I was just going to take it out of my my uh, my trading account. I day trade, and I was just going to take it, out, you know, just take that cash out. Well, we need to see that. and I was worried for a second there because I was like, I'm in and out of so many positions, yeah. so I'm just not quite sure what they're going to take of it. But that, once I gave them three month statements that showed, you know, I had the, the 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 value of it held steady. They they were mm-hmm. they didn't give me too much of a hard time, but. I do remember that when I was suddenly said, no, we're not buying and selling it on the same day. They said, where is it coming from? You know, so.
0: <laughs> so they, they actually do have bridge loans for people in this kind of yeah. weird circumstance, you know, but it is, yeah, it's stressful when you're trying to buy and sell a house. You're, inevitably, You can't do that on the same day. Right. Yeah, so like yeah. either you're, or you have to sell them like, where do I live? Right. You know, yeah. in this small period of time. Yeah. That's an annoying hassle. I, I had to deal with that too, getting a house, but luckily I was able to like get some cash on hand and then. Know, do it that way, but no, I think that's an interesting way that they do the policy. And interesting, what you said about the credit cards too. I know a lot of people also like with the credit cards. You know, they'll just shuffle to another credit card that has zero percent interest for the first twelve months. You know, and then yeah, just yeah. keep shuffling. You know, for a while to buy time, and that, that's another strategy. I, I've heard of people doing that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, are you are you looking to buy in the in the Chicago area, or where are you looking at right
2: yeah, now? Or, yeah, yeah, in the in the west suburbs of Chicago. Okay,
0: my my brother uh, lives out in Schaumburg. Oh
2: Okay yeah Shaw. So, yeah, Sha- yeah schomburg is a little far further away we want to kind of be i guess yeah kind of in between schomburg and then downtown chicago
1: okay yeah because schomburg is like right at, right next to o'hare pretty much
2: yep mm-hmm. exactly so,
1: well great town i do like chicago haven't been out there in a little while for obvious reasons but uh i do look <laughs> forward to uh to getting back out to chicago getting some deep dish pizza oh yeah uh, one of our favorite restaurants the purple pig right there on michigan avenue i don't know if you've been there but it's a Great, great spot. Really good food out there. Um, uh, I guess back back on topic just a little bit. If somebody wanted to do this, if somebody was looking to, you know, get one of these whole life policies, where would they go? How do they avoid the multi-level marketing yeah. pyramid scheme and find somebody that, you know, that they can trust?
2: Okay. So good. Yeah. So number one, um, make sure that the advisor you're dealing with is actually concerned about your financial situation. They're asking like good questions. Like, What are your 10-year goals? What's your 20-year goal? What They're actually going into detail about you and then not making any recommendations at all. A really good advisor would not make any recommendations on the first call. It's just... Data gathering, information gathering only for an hour to an hour and a half even of just collecting information on you, getting to know you, building rapport with you, understanding where, which, what it is that you want to accomplish. Because everybody has different goals. Somebody wants to be a billionaire versus somebody who just wants $10,000 a month in passive income, two different financial analysis for those people, right? So a good advisor would would be able to understand you and good questions. And then when it comes to so that also rules out the MLM people, MLM people don't care at all about people. So, they want they want know. their if
1: I remember they wanted their $65 check by the time they walked out the door.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure somebody's taking their time. They're actually concerned about your, you and your family's financial situation. And they're comfortable asking like personal questions, like, you know, how much money does your wife make? What do you guys do with your savings? And you know, very like detailed questions about that. Uh, and these are good questions to, for an advisor to ask you, you know. And then as far as when it comes to the bank on yourself strategy, make sure that they are either a bank on yourself professional or an IBC infinite banking concept professional, they have some sort of additional credentials on top of their life insurance license that shows that they understand how to use dividend paying whole life insurance for self banking purposes and how to use dividend paying whole life insurance Alongside other investments too, because that's also tricky to do too. You need somebody that knows how to do that, even somebody who has like some sort of referral partnership where they can connect somebody who's competent in the stock market, and then they are competent with this strategy, and they can connect them together.
1: So, if somebody wanted to learn a little more about bank on yourself. Is there? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a, a book you found on Amazon. Yeah, is that yeah. The best place.
2: Yeah, it's it's called uh, the Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen. That's one book, and another book is Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. Um, and actually, if the listeners reach out and they go to finassetsprotection.com, F-I-N assetsprotection.com, I'll send them a free copy of either book they'd like. So either if they wanted The Bank on Yourself Revolution or Becoming Your Own Banker, or if they wanted both books to read for free, just reach out to us and I'll send you a free copy of those books.
1: I'm going to take you up. I want uh, I want uh, The Bank on Yourself Revolution. I think that that sounds like a really okay. good read. So I would I would love to get that. And we'll definitely link to your website uh, here as well. And your podcast, uh, thinking Mm -hmm. like a bank. Okay. Yeah. If somebody wanted to reach out to you directly, you just mentioned your website. Is that the best place to find you now? Are you limited? I know we talked here in Chicago. Are you limited to dealing with people in Illinois or can you help people around the country, around the world?
2: Yes. So, um, typically it's us and Canada only some situations I can help people outside. And like, if they're in like Europe or in South Africa or in Australia, um, it's a little bit tricky though because they would need to like all, have already owned a business in the U.S. They would have probably a, like a green card. They would be coming to the U.S. frequently, of course, besides COVID. But um, there would have to be some sort of American connection to the, their business that they own. But for the most part, U.S. and Canada.
1: Okay, great. Well, we will link to your podcast in the show notes. Also, link to your website
2: mm-hmm.
1: and. And that way people can, people can find you if they're interested. Uh, is, did we miss anything? Is there anything that you, that we, a stone we left unturned that you'd like to add in here? And don't go anywhere. We have one more, one more little fun segment.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we mentioned, we talked about the taxes. We talked about liquidity. We talked about the guaranteed growth, the safety of insurance companies. Um, the life insurance benefit of it. Uh, yeah. So we kind of touched on almost everything. There, of course, there's still a lot more to learn about this concept. And I highly recommend you check out the books of Bank on Yourself Revolution or Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. Uh, either one of those books will give you a really good idea of how this concept works and how you could utilize this concept.
1: All right. Well, great. Well, sorry, we do have one more uh, segment. We like to have a little bit of fun yeah. here. Brian has brought in the question of the day. Yeah. I have not heard it. You have not heard it. And we're just going to have to answer it on the spot. He's been, I don't know. I never know what to expect. So Brian,
0: take it away. So this is one that that came from my wife and it's financially related. And and apparently this question was asked to a bunch of people. So the question is, how much money would you have to have, like asset wise, to consider yourself to have financial freedom? So how much money would it take for you to say that you have financial freedom? What is the amount of money? And then what do you think most people said when they were asked that question? How much money do you think they need to have? to have financial freedom?
2: Okay. So I think it it really depends on the person, but just kind of give a shorter answer. um, Financial freedom is the ability to take your current income right now, your current monthly income, and then maybe add in a little additional layer on top for inflation and other um, unexpected expenses. And then having that on a passive basis without having to work for it. That I think is the ultimate goal of financial freedom is just having that consistent income stream of money coming in um, without having to work. Uh, and I think when it comes to just asking general people, well, what do they think of financial freedom? Um, I don't know maybe somebody might just say, you know, a million dollars in the bank account, you know, just have an even number, kind of just a lot of money. But I think alongside it's not just one or the other alongside having a lot of money in the bank, it's also the consistent stream of money coming in to refill the money that you've lost to.
0: So, so yeah, so I think that that's how a lot of people interpret the question. So you think, so your number would be, you think most people would say a million, but what about for yourself? If you were saying, Have financial freedom, you know. I will give you this much money. You can invest it however you want. What would be that number for you? You think?
2: If there was like no cap to it,
0: (laughs) I mean, you could say you could say whatever number, but like this is what number to you means to you. This is where I think I have financial freedom at. Like you could say whatever number. There's no judgment here. It's just this is kind of an opinion question for financial freedom for you. At what at what number do you think that would be around?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just to be clear, is it just a it a one time amount of money? Yeah, one time amount of
0: money you can invest it however you want. You know, mm-hmm. you can try to get you can generate as much passive income as you can out of that amount of money. But we'll, we'll inject this much amount, and then now you can say I have financial freedom. So okay. what would that number be to you? You think? So I'm
2: going to be greedy. and I'm going to say a hundred million dollars hundred million
0: dollars yeah. okay interesting interesting <laughs> what's any any, any, any any like thought process why you say 100 million why not 10 million or yeah 50 million
2: so 100 million because i'd be able to just buy like i don't know how many multi-family buildings get passive income from that i could take a small <laughs> chunk of that invested just like play with it online and day trading uh you buy stocks with it buy options with it still have enough money just do a couple annuities do life insurance cash value life insurance and just have the money compounding and then just really never have to work again and then also my kid i don't have any kids now but my future kids would probably never have to work with that kind of money um of course i would want them to i, I don't want them to be spoiled rich kids um but just kind of the financial security i think a 100 million dollars would be a perfect amount of money to experience everything in life have family experience everything be able to give to charities be able to solve a lot of world problems with that kind of money um yeah
0: Interesting. Okay. Michael, you want to give your answer here? I,
1: I actually have this answer. I wrote in my, my original blog post and my now defunct website that I where I just started my uh, my day trading and my trading experience, but $2.5 million is my number. $2.5 million would allow me to draw $100,000. Now $2.5 million, cash in the bank, mm-hmm. no debt. Yeah, okay. Because that would allow me to uh, withdraw 4% a year, which is $100,000, uh-huh. which is a in North Carolina here, I can live very, very comfortably with no debt and a hundred thousand dollars. Just kind of a round number there.
0: Um, did you calculate this when you had your kid, you know, your, 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 your child, Michael, and you know, you know, also was, you got your house and your utilities, you know, that your current state well, of how, living. How, remember, I said no debt. No, okay. No debt, but you have, you have to pay utilities. You know, you have to, you know, you're, you're going to maybe you need a new car at some point, you know, your expenses, your normal expenses, Michael, hundred thousand covers. I, I, think,
1: it? I think right now, with the 2.5 million dollars withdrawing you know starting at a hundred thousand dollars that's four percent which is very conservative s p 500 account Mm -hmm. should earn at least you know 10 percent average per year yeah so you you might have medical expenses you know okay okay are you trying to
0: knock my number Uh, i'm just just i'm just other variables i just want to make sure you consider it all that's all
1: but that that's my number because i think um By the time I get there, I think I'd be uh, probably a lot more savvy than I am right now, and I'd probably be able to grow it more if Mm -hmm. needed. But that would be the number I'd be comfortable with saying. Okay, I don't need to go and spend time at my office, which is right here in my house, anyways. But you know, I don't have to put in these six, eight hour days just working away. So that that that's my number. In terms of what other people, I'm going to actually, I'm going to agree with uh, with there. I'm going to say, yeah, people say a million bucks. That's what I think people would say. What do I need? I need a million bucks. I bet you that's what people say. So
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my wife, I, again, this is Brian. It's I, don't on know, you. I, I don't know what the source for my wife is, but she said most people like aim very high, like 30, 40, 100 million. That's where actually most people said they, that's how much money they would want to feel financial freedom. So mm-hmm. I guess most people are not going to get financial freedom just <laughs> based on the statistics here. But I think mm-hmm. everyone is like, right, like I want to have all these things. I want to do all this. Like that would be freedom to them. And I think she said even there was like one outlier, he wanted like, you know, a billion dollars because he wanted to have like a private jet, you know, and some other things. And, you know, it's with like a billion. It's like, let's look like, how much does a private jet actually cost or like how many days a month do you want to use it? Like, let's maybe renting it's more efficient. So, yeah. you know, but uh, but for me, I actually came out on a number of very similar years. Like, like, I was just laying in bed, my wife asked me this question. I was like, I'm not going to mentally calculate it, but I was like 5 million, I think $5 million, like I had, you know, you, I want to save for college, plus all the expenses per month. So I think my wife aimed a little higher than that. She's, but anyways, kind of similar math to you, Michael, but I was like $5 million You give me that and, and no debt, mm-hmm. no debt being key. And the house that I have right now, I don't need it. I don't need a giant house. I don't need like fancy car. You know, I'm okay with my, my life. So I don't need to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. 5 million be plenty. And like, I know my medical expenses will go up later, but whatever. See, I think I'd well, still yeah, that's the go question. on vacation
1: with my 2.5 million.
0: I was, and I'm sure I can buy another Hyundai. Yeah. You're, you're me driving an electric. You're me driving a Tesla, man. You're gonna like, you know, living the dream over there.
1: I like that Anyways. question. That was uh, a good question, though. I like that. I feel like now, now my life goals are. I'm I'm in the poorhouse essentially with my. Yeah, you gotta aim like, higher like, there. Michael. <laughs> million. Brian's got double that. Sorry, guy, has got, you know, I, I don't even like fifty. Sorry, he's
0: got dreams, man. He wants to live the life. He wants to like, you know, he, he wants he wants he wants like buildings, you know, he multiple. Like
2: that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think you get what you think about, right? So like if you're thinking about, you know, a hundred million dollars, you're probably gonna get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just in my philosophy.
0: Yeah, it doesn't hurt to dream yeah. or to shoot for that, to set a goal like that. Oh yeah, yeah. You're that sure is what, you know, I've heard that, you know, you if you aim for nothing,
1: you'll always hit it. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> they teach that in the marines there it's like you gotta aim when you shoot Michael. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes they do teach us to aim aim small miss small they say so if you if you're making a small mistake you're just gonna miss by a little bit but you're still missing
0: <laughs> well that's great well we really appreciate your time sarah yeah. it's, it's been a great conversation thank you for explaining a lot of that to us because i think a lot of again young people really don't know the the details about insurance and how to do that. So I think you're doing a great job educating people. So really appreciate it. Um, This is Training for Keeps. I'm Brian. And
1: this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Trading for Keeps is not intended as investment advice. It is only intended for entertainment purposes. We do receive some affiliate commissions from links in our show notes.